Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening and welcome to the Interpreter Radio Show, sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the scriptures, doctrine, history, and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can find us at interpreterfoundation.org. That's interpreterfoundation.org. This is Bruce Webster along with Chris Fredrickson and Robert Boylan, uh, with the studio being run by Martin Tanner. And uh, we'll see if he chimes in here. Tonight, we will start off by covering 2 Nephi chapters 3 through 5. This is, this is a critical transition in Nephi's entire record because it basically wraps up his whole history uh, section. Everything after this is just going to be him talking about uh, prophecy, quoting Isaiah, so on and so forth. So it's important to look at these chapters. Now, the, the last week's show covered... Second Nephi 1 and 2, uh, and which focused mostly on Lehi's instructions to Jacob. So now we're going to start with chapter 3, which is his instructions to Joseph, which contains prophecies that came apparently off of the brass plates and that have relevance both to the history of the Book of Mormon itself and to our last days. So with that big T in, I'm going to toss it first to Robert and then to Chris. Robert, thoughts on 2 Nephi 3? Uh, well, I like what Frank Garner says when he tries to situate it in his uh, six-volume commentary, which everyone should get if they want to study the Yes, yes. Um, let me just quote from page 55 of volume 2, uh, and this is about the Perikopane verses 1 to 3. Uh, Lehi now bestows a personal blessing on Joseph, a blessing that reflects his prophetic foreknowledge of his descendants' ag- agonies. He cannot bless Joseph that his descendants will escape that destruction, but only that they will not be utterly destroyed. It is a bittersweet blessing since it recognizes their all but certain destruction. Regardless of how we understand the final demise of the Nephites, under which the Josephites were politically and religiously subsumed, Joseph's physical descendants will survive the political devastation. Here's another evidence that the labels Nephite and Lamanite are broader than mere tribal aff- um, affiliation. And then it goes on about a latter-day Joseph, and I'm sure we'll discuss that and how it maps onto the uh, prophet Joseph Smith vis-a-vis fulfillment. But um, it's kind of a uh, segue from chapter two, which is a discussion about the fall of man, the necessity of there has to be like um, good and evil in all things for an experiential knowledge. And kind of goes into this very similar patriarchal blessing of sorts of Lehi to his son Joseph and various blessings and prop- prophecies of Joseph of Egypt that are not in the biblical texts, but are restored, if you will, in Second Nephi 3, as well as JST chapter 50. Chris. Well, we're seeing a transition during this period of time. We're seeing the passing of the um, gauntlet to Nephi. And one of the things that, you know, I like to reflect on sometimes, like when you reflect on um, the tree of life dream, is what precipitates this dream, what prompts that dream. And here we have Nephi, and he's going to be talking about um, two things that I think are absolutely fascinating. The first thing, he's going to talk about the power of deliverance through Jesus Christ. But there's also going to be right here at the beginning when we're talking about Joseph in Egypt, we're talking about remembering. We're hearing a lot about that today, remembering. And, you know, 
the word to me is not quite as evocative <clears throat> because as you study it, and particularly as you see the Book of Mormon frequently referencing Old Testament figures that loom large in the lives of the Hebrews during this period of time and should for us still today, what you see is what the Lord's talking about when we talk about remembering is recalling the past and knowing your history. And as you know and understand your history, noticing the way that the Lord intervened in behalf of the righteous. And so when we're told to remember today, you know, one of the things I do a lot that kind of helps lift my spirit sometimes when it's like time to throw in the towel is I recall <clears throat> the circumstances of the saints that made their way to Utah or that were in Nauvoo during the persecution or that were in Independence, Missouri, and all that they suffered and all that they sacrificed for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which generally leaves me then at that point in time when I reflect on that, it leaves me thinking, you are such a wimp, Chris, you know, buck up and move on and live the principles of the gospel. And so we're seeing, you know, these references to remembering here, and they're powerful references, and they should be as powerful for us as they were for the people of Nephi at this period of time. Now, there are a couple of things I find interesting about uh, this chapter, 2 Nephi 3. First, as I have to say, it's, it's probably my least favorite chapter to read aloud. Uh, in my wife, in the scripture study that my wife and I have, because you end up saying the fruit of thy loins or the fruit of his loins about 30 times. And it would be wonderful if there were, I, my personal suspicion is that there was a single word there that expressed this. Uh, but saying this over and over again gets, gets a little tiring and awkward after a while. That said, this prophesies the writing of the Book of Mormon, and I think this lays the groundwork for Nephi creating both sets of plates, because Nephi creates those, I think, only after this point. This is while Lehi is still alive. It's before <coughs> Nephi starts creating the plates. And you have in verse 12, he says, Wherefore the fruit of thy loins shall write, and the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write, uh, and they will grow together. Basically, this is a direct parallel to the uh, prophecy of the stick of Joseph and the stick of Judah uh, in Ezekiel. But I think this sets, more than anything, a prophetic mandate that Nephi is going to fulfill with both the large and small plates of Nephi, and that's going to carry down for the next thousand years. So this is, this is a very critical chapter in why the plates. Why did Nephi create the plates? Why were these set forth? Because you have Lehi quoting a prophecy to Joseph of Egypt, saying, the fruit of thy loins shall write. And so you have this prophetic burden that says, hey, we have to keep this record, and this is going to be brought forth at some day. And that triggers a whole set of decisions, starting with Nephi and the plates and the mandate that continues down generation after generation with varying levels of obedience. Well, we'll see the small plates of Nephi sort of peter out eventually, but the large plates keep getting passed, in some cases passed from hand to hand or lineage to lineage to keep them going forward until Mormon is finally in a position to do the abridgment. And then his son Moroni is in a position to bury that to where they can be retrieved by Joseph Smith, who is prophesied of in here uh, in the last days. So this is, this is an important, very important chapter uh, for the Book of Mormon itself, not just... Uh, for the, for the prophecy of Joseph Smith and his father, 
but specifically for the prophetic mandate of uh, the creation of the plates and the eventual abridgment by Mormon. Robert, thoughts? Uh, yeah, um, maybe like if we were to discuss like maybe uh, the uh, various prophecies of the uh, Latter Day Seer. Um, the context, of course, is that this is a re- uh, repetition of a prophecy of Joseph of Egypt. So it's not in the extant biblical texts, although Joseph did add it to JST chapter fifty. But they give like a very good summary of it, and I take it from um, one of the very few books on post eighteen thirty Book of Mormon prophecies in terms of their fulfillment. Um, the Fulfillment of Book of Mormon Prophecies by Ross Warner, oh. uh, which is based on the August 1961 Master's Dissertation BYU, which is available online. But he gives a like, very good summary of these prophecies. Um, this latter-day Joseph will be a shy seer. Uh, the seer uh, shall do a great work um, of work amongst the Lamanites. Uh, this Joseph will be highly esteemed and able to convince the Lamanites of the promises, uh, prophecies and covenants the Lord has made in the past. Uh, this Joseph shall do none other work that, uh, unless, of course, it's been commanded by God. The seer, Joseph, is to be great like unto Moses. He's referred to as being a Moses in verse 17. Uh, out of weakness, the seer shall be made strong. Those who seek to destroy the seer shall be confounded. And a spokesman uh, would be provided for the seer. And maybe we could discuss like some of the fulfillments later, but like a number of these were fulfilled, funnily enough, after the initial publication of the Book of Mormon in March of 1830. Because like a common objection to like various prophecies in the Book of Mormon is like they're either very vague or they only have internal fulfillment, like say the birth of Christ being prophesied. But there's actually certain prophecies, including this particular passage, that only has post Trinity fulfillment and kind of shows like the prophetic horizon of the Book of Mormon does not end where 1830 actually goes after 1830. And not in terms of say vague prophecies, like say Christ will come again, like very specific prophecies in terms of here, the future translator of the text as well. So... I think that's kind of significant. Chris? Uh, Chapter 3. You know, there's just some verses that I really love, for instance, and that I think a lot about. For instance, verse 1 is fascinating to me. He says to Joseph, you know, you were born in the wilderness of mine afflictions in the days of my greatest sorrow. Did thy mother bear thee? And we have to think about what was going on. You know, here is, she's giving birth to children, but she has these two older sons that are obstreperous and troublemakers. And, you know, on the boat, they're brought down to grief that they, they, they kind of wish for the grave. Um, and so one of the things that really jumps off the page of me is that their lives were challenging. Their lives were uh, Lehi's life, Nephi's life, they're they're going to face daunting, challenging circumstances in the wilderness. They're cut off from their culture, from their society, and they're establishing a community. But they're you know that Robert Heinlein novel. They're strangers in a strange land for in many respects here, and so that kind of jumps out at us. And in some respects, you know, we can kind of make that case today for those that are faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we see the deterioration of society in the world around us today, we can sometimes connect with the idea of being strangers in a strange land and longing for times past when perhaps there was a little more sensibility in the world and a little more civility and kindness. And then I really like, too, just to try to contemplate what these words must have meant to Joseph Smith as he is translating them. I mean, think about sitting there, and he's young. I mean, he's so young at this period of time, and he is being told that you're going to be a deliverer like Moses. You're going to be like Joseph of old. You're going to do the most extraordinary things. And 
for him, it not only had to be daunting, but I would say in some respects, too, it had to be a confidence booster for him as well. Okay. But it also came with the recognition, which was, you know, his very first experience and several of his experiences. His very first experience is not with God the Father and Jesus Christ. It's with Satan to recognize the power of Satan and his capacity for evil and, you know, to do ill will towards mankind. So with that in mind, and then he hears this, it certainly has to remind him that, man, the only way I can get through it is to partner with the Savior, Jesus Christ, and to rely on him. But I can do great things because of him. And so it has to be kind of a wow moment for Joseph Smith for, you know, the recognition of who he is meant to be to descend upon him during this period of time. And so I I love this. The other thing is that, you know, we have to understand, and he should be for this, um, for us today as he he was then, but Joseph of Egypt is sort of a a prototype, and he's a chief gatherer in Israel. Um, And his job was to gather souls and members as the sands of the sea, you know, ten thousands of Ephraim, um, of the children of Ephraim and Manasseh foreshadowing the great redeemer, Jesus Christ. And then, um, you know, that um, determination to deliver and um, Jesus Christ and both um, Joseph being willing to, you know, sacrifice their self, themselves for, you know, um, helping the children of Israel to return and to embrace the Savior, Jesus Christ. And in many respects, I think that's a message for Joseph Smith, too. You're a prototype. And we read, you know, in the scriptures, you know, that your, your name will be had for good and evil. So I think this is very educational for Joseph Smith as he reads and studies and translates this um, section of the Book of Mormon. And... <clears throat> Finally, there's there's an interesting foreshadowing here of comments that both Mormon and Moroni are going to make a thousand years later. Uh, in verse 21, uh, he's talking because of their faith, meaning the faith of Joseph, this young this younger brother, youngest brother's Joseph's descendants, and generally the descendants of Lehi, those of the tribe of Joseph. Because of their faith, their word shall proceed forth of my mouth unto their brethren, which are the fruit of thy loins. And the weakness of their words will I make strong in their faith unto the remembering of my covenant, which I made into my father. So right off the bat, you have this recognition. It's not going to be a perfect record, but what is preserved, what is transmitted will make them strong in their faith and bring them back to the covenant, which God has made of these descendants. Now, this is, this is, all the way back in the time of Joseph of, of, of uh, Egypt. But here, then, Le- then Lehi goes on, because of this covenant, thou art blessed for thy seed shall not be destroyed, for they shall hearken unto the words of the book. And again, we have yet an initial prophecy of the prophet Joseph, one mighty among them who's going to be raised up. Uh, and the interesting thing is Joseph largely disappears after this. We, we have mentioned to them as he is... He is serving as a priest along with his brother Jacob, but it's Jacob who takes over the plates. Uh, and we really don't have much mention of Joseph beyond this point. He's he's one of the seven tribes that gets mentioned from time to time, uh, Nephites, Jacobites, and Josephites. Uh, so apparently he does have seed that passes on. Uh, they're, they're almost treating him like a woman in the Book of Mormon. Disappears. The, yeah, he, 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 he does disappear, but it's it's 
<clears throat> so this is this is while it it the the chapter chapter may as I said seem a bit awkward because you you have fruit of thy loins like twenty times in in the chapter. Uh, you have this underscoring of the idea that the Lord keeps his covenants. This is directly tied in. This is a direct parallel with the Abrahamic covenant. It's sort of like the Lord works through covenant genealogies, uh, not to favor them necessarily, but to bless them and to protect them. And the promises here aren't your descendants are going to be great. It's they're going to be destroyed mostly, but those that survive, the Lord will remember them. And the words they write will help bring your seed back to that covenant path generations from now. Robert, any last comments here? Or? Uh, I think that pretty sums it up. Just like to piggyback on what Chris was saying about remembrance, though, when it comes to the covenant. It should be known, like, to remember a covenant for ancient people was not simply a physiological memory, memory of something like, you know, I remember the good old days. It means to make again present and new. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the Jews, they zakar, they remember Passover, but not physiologically they actually make the elements present again. Oh, and this kind of comes out very well when it comes to like remembering the covenants vis-a-vis the Book of Mormon and the Abrahamic covenant and so forth. It's not simply like, oh, I remember it. No, you make it again present over in a physical reality, a placard, if you will. Lovely, lovely. One thing I will jump in, this is Catherine Thomas had something really interesting to say. She poses the question, why does the Lord choose weak things of the earth to perform his work? Because, quotes, so great is humanity's need to draw upon the true source of power that the Lord chooses people who could not possibly succeed on their own and provides them resources to demonstrate to all where the power of deliverance really resides. Yet a man may have great power given him from God. Uh, that's Ammon talking in Mosiah chapter 8. And, you know, we see this over and over. We see the least among, you know, God's children in many respects. Jesus Christ is, of course, again, the great prototype or the great example of this, the least of them. And yet he proves to be the great deliverer. So it's really quite sweet when you think about Joseph Smith and again, you know, what that meant for him and for those that understood these scriptures. Now we move to chapter 4, 2 Nephi chapter 4, and in my import, in what we're going to see here in the first portion of this is we're going to see Lehi continuing to give these blessings, and it's interesting who he blesses, but it's also interesting who he does not bless. Uh, and in, in, and I'll, I'll, I'll spoil my main point here. He doesn't bless Laman and Lemuel. He blesses their children. Okay, but there's one blessing that I'm sure he gave, which is not recorded here. There is no patriarchal blessing for Nephi in any of these chapters. That's a major omission. Nephi was his prophetic heir, was going to be the leader. There's no patriarchal blessing there. And my personal feeling is that Nephi was too pain because what we'll see is we'll see all this. We'll see Nephi, we'll see Lehi's death. We will see Laman and Lemuel once again saying, yeah, let's kill this troublesome brother of ours. <laughs> and then we have Nephi's Psalm in which Nephi laments his own imperfections. And I think that's why he omitted his own blessing. I think Nephi, by the time he wrote this, it was after he'd already separated himself I think he was so heartbroken by how his family had divided. And by that point, his brothers were were finding ways to kill him and those who followed him. 
and I, I, I suspect he felt unworthy to record what I suspect were very marvelous things that Lehi had said about him. But instead focuses in the latter part of this chapter on his own frustrations with himself. Uh, and in very, very blunt terms. I mean, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't spare himself at all from what he sees as he refers to, quite frankly, as his sins. So having said all that, mm-hmm. and I hope I haven't spoiled all of chapter four, uh, we'll go over to Chris first. Chris, thoughts on uh, chapter four? Yeah, and as I mentioned— let's, let's divide in two sections. Let's do all the blessings first, then we'll do the death, and then we'll talk about Nephi's psalm. So. Okay. All right. So you've, you've got Lehi here. He's giving these final blessings. We're making this transfer of, you know, the mantle of um, prophet— you know of the prophet to Nephi during this period of time I, I I think to myself just what you mentioned Bruce but I think you know from a mother's point of view or you know a family kind of situation how heart-wrenching it had to be for Lehi that he could not leave blessings on his two sons Laman and Lemuel yeah. because of their wickedness and you know it's the end of his life he recognizes the recalcitrance of his children their obstinacy their defiance of authority their refusal to exercise self-restraint and to you know submit to god and um you know and so he's going to at least try to promise these blessings to the grandchildren in the sense that the sins of the father will not descend on the children and so I found that very touching to, you know, start us off here. Robert. Uh, I like what Brant Gardner says about verses uh, 5 to 7, um, because he notes, like, Laman and Lemuel themselves are not blessed. The lineage is blessed, which is kind of yeah. odd. Uh, it's kind of uh, what they would say in the uh, business foreshadowing of what's going to come. <laughs> um, but as Gardner notes, uh, Lehi blesses the lineage of Leman, addressing them as though they are his own adopted children. They are at least adopted into a blessing that should have been pronounced upon his son Leman. And he does continue, like, in essence, Lehi's blessing is actually a negative one. Not that good things will befall them, but that the cursing due to their disobedience will be deflected to their father, who as patriarch is responsible for his lineage. Lehi mitigates, though he cannot shield them from their fate. That blessing that the lineage will not perish is fulfilled temporarily in Book of Mormon history and beyond, but Lehi's earlier prophecies that the gospel be restored to his descendants indicates that he saw a spiritual dimension in this blessing as well. And it continues with respect to say, the, uh, the cursing that will be pronounced upon them in chapter 5 and so forth. But um, some may be wondering about uh, why Lehi would approach the lineage of Laman as if they were adopted, um, especially when they actually had this kind of biological link to them early on. And we kind of noticed this like when we were discussing Romans, but like for ancient people, fathers would actually adopt their own biological children and descendants to put them into a special privileged position. Um, I'll actually quote one non-LDS um, authority on this. Uh, he's, he's deceased now, but he was actually a Unitarian systematic theologian, uh, an Alva Huffer, and he's talking about adoption in Romans, but it can be ad- um, transposed into, say, adoption in the Book of Mormon. Uh, today, when one speaks of adoption, he refers to the legal process whereby a stranger becomes a member of the family. In Paul's time, and it would be the case for Lehi as well, adoptions refer to that legal process whereby a parent places his own child in the legal position of an adult son with all the privileges of inheritance. Someone may question why adoption was required when a child was already a son by birth. It must be remembered that in pagan Rome, a citizen often had many wives and many children. Some of the wives may have had concubines and slaves. The citizen may not have wanted the offspring of his slave wives to receive his titles, position in society and inheritance, maybe for Lehi's disobedient son. But the legal procedure of adoption, therefore, provided a means whereby the citizen could designate those children which he wished to be considered his legal sons and heirs. 
Though receiving newness of life, believers become children of God. Through adoption, the children of God are declared to be his sons, who have all the privileges and inheritance of sonship. That kind of ties nicely into, like, say, the end times fulfillment of this, you know, in spite of, say, Laman himself, and, of course, his early descendants, eventually, in fulfillment of some of the prophecies mentioned in the previous chapter, 2 Nephi 3, uh, the descendants, if you will, of Lehi through this uh, rebellious son will actually eventually receive the covenants and blessings that are uh, prophesied unto them as well. The and, and something interesting, I mean, this must have been even more... It, it is, I think, an indication of how... What's the word I'm looking for? How adversarial Laman and Lemuel had become. Because to a certain extent, this is a slap in the face. I mean, they're mad enough about, you know, Nephi wants to be a ruler and king over us and so on. And this is, there are curse overtones here of uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh, you know, there, there's no blessing upon Laman, no blessing upon Lemuel. They're, they're children, much like Ephraim and Manasseh are adopted as, uh, you know, in essence, his, his descendants to the extent that uh, uh, the Lord is going to be merciful unto them. Uh, he, thou, thou shalt not be utterly destroyed, but then the end the sea shall be blessed. Now, there is one other thing that misses, and then we have, he spake unto the sons of Ishmael, yea, even all his household, I assume Zorah, he probably said some nice things to Zorah. Then he speaks to Sam. And, and Sam is even more sort of off to one side because we don't hear, we really don't hear about Sam after that. He's not listed as one of the seven tribes. Uh, he's not mentioned, I think, after this point. This may be, I, I didn't look, but this may be the last mention of Sam in the Book of Mormon. Uh, and he even says, your seed will be numbered with Nephi's. Uh, so we don't know exactly what happened. There is one important, other important thing that's missing through all this, and that's the death of Sariah. We don't know when that happens. But it's fairly. It's going to be fairly clear that I believe she dies before uh, Lehi, because when Lehi dies, they're immediately out to kill Nephi. Laman Lemon are out, immediately out to kill Nephi, and when Nephi flees, which we'll see in chapter five, doesn't take Sarai with him. Takes his sisters, mm-hmm. you know, his wife and children, his sisters, and those who would go with him, uh, as he puts it. Uh, somewhere in here, Sariah dies. My suspicion is it's not long after they reached here. I think I think the trip, uh, the stress of the trip probably did her in or, you know. Childbearing. Caught, caught a local ailment. <laughs> Lots of kids. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so this, and again, I think this gets to, to Nephi's uh, distress. And what we have is in, you know, verse 12, Lehi dies and was buried, and after not many days, Lemuel and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael were angry with me because of the admonitions of the Lord. Uh, and Nephi was constrained to speak unto them according to the word, and he talks about this. And then we're going to launch into this. Last thoughts before on these last few verses before we launch into Nephi's psalm, as it's commonly known. I'll jump in, and Chris. this is just to, to piggyback on Robert's comment. The perfect example of what you're talking about is uh, Caesar Augustus, you know, Octavian, adopting Tiberius as his son. 
so that Tiberius inherits the throne, although he is not a biological child. He's a wife of, he's a husband of, I think, Julius, Ju- Julie, Julie, what's the daughter's name? But yeah, but but he adopts him so that the he can kind of, he's hoping that he will preserve his legacy and all the good that he had done in creating the Pax Romana. So that's a fascinating concept and help, really helps us understand what's going on here, the adoption of these children. Robert? Um, no, I think that's pretty good. I okay. We can move on to the sound of Nephi. So now we have Nephi. Now, it's interesting how this launches because he says, I was constrained to speak unto them, as verse 14, according to the word, for I had spoken unto them many things, and also my father before his death, many of which sayings are written upon mine other plates, for more history part are written upon my other plates. So he's, And he'll talk about in chapter 5 his actual creation of the plates and the timing and so on. And the, the famous verse, upon these I write the things of my soul and many scriptures which are engraven upon the plates of brass. And he talks about, you know, how much he loves the scriptures. But then we get this, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord and showing me his marvelous and great works, my heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am. Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities, I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which doth so easily beset me, and when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nephi is one of the greatest prophecies and prophets in all of history. I mean, has has, you know, theophanies, has has tremendous detailed end time prophecies that he makes. Uh and we'll get to those uh, later in Second Nephi, not tonight, but you know later in the book. And yet, he has when he's written up to this point. Again, he's been inscribing all this on his small plates, and he gets to the point where his father has died and his brothers want to kill him, and he's heartbroken. And his 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 he does not condemn his brothers. He is struggling because of what he sees as his own weaknesses. I wonder if Nephi at this point is has chronicled all this point uh, as per Noel Reynolds and a number of other offers since. <clears throat> really, first Nephi and up to this point, this portion of second Nephi, established Nephi as the legitimate heir to Lehi, uh, both legalistically and, and prophetically. Mm-hmm. You know, he is the one, he has the right to the sort of Laban, the brass plates, the Leahona, which he'll take with him when he flees. Uh, he's, he's basically, this is, this is <clears throat> political sounds kind of crass, but it really is saying, hey, no, I did things right. Uh, I followed my father. The Lord spoke to me. I had great revelations. My brothers kept rebelling against it. And he gets to this point and you don't have self-satisfaction. You have a broken heart. Uh mm-hmm. And he, you know, condemns his own weaknesses here. Uh, Robert. Yes, just to piggyback on that, uh, like verses 16 to 35, uh, since the time of Sidney B. Sperry is being known as the Simon Nephi. And like it's C generous or unique in terms of the Book of Mormon because it's the only Psalm in the Book of Mormon. Like there's chiasmus, there's other forms of parallelism, but this is the only biblical like Psalm in the entirety yeah. of the text. And you were mentioning like saying the work of Noel Reynolds and others. That would indicate like up to this point, Nephi knew why he was composing, and it was basically determined and fixed, if you will. 
But I would agree with Brent Gerner that um, when it comes to this passage, verses 16 to 35, one of the more interesting aspects of this poem or Sammy is that it appears to be a spontaneous creation. It flows directly from the team of the prose preceding it, suggesting that it was not a poem written elsewhere and inserted here into the text. It is triggered by Nephi's discussion of his love of scripture and his cherished right. Those two teams also run through the poem as he contrasts himself with his personal inadequacies to his tremendous responsibility to present the teens of God. While there are structured units in the poem, the poem has no overall structure. The first and second units repeat their basic structure, and then uh, Brank kind of goes on on pages 84 to 85. But it kind of shows, like, you see, like, the humanity of Nephi here. He's very yeah. vulnerable. Because previously to this, like, you know, he's called as a prophet, he's faithful, and so forth. You know, there's often the whole team, like, Nephi's a bit of a jerk to his brothers because he's so self-righteous in first and second Nephi. Um but at the same time, like, we see, like, the humanity of him. He uses, like, a lot of hyperbole, you know, like, uh, how he's a wretched man, um, how, you know, you know, he mentions, like, the consuming of his flesh when it comes to the holiness of God and so forth. You see, like, a very strong character who's gone through, like, heck and back, if you will, throughout his life, you know, being very vulnerable. You know, again, like, you know, Nephi here is, like, a very good parallel to the Apostle Paul in terms of the you know, such great responsibility, so many experiences, and yet he kind of knows like how absolutely inadequate he is mm-hmm. before the uh, before the presence of God, but also in terms of the great mantle and responsibility that's been placed upon him, all the more so with the uh, death of his father, the patriarch Lehi as well. So um, you see a lot of uh, humanity in this kind of um, very important uh, mm-hmm. text in the Book of Mormon here. Yeah. Chris. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You see extraordinary humility here. Um, Nephi's psalm, if it is a psalm, maybe it's a lament, like we find in Lamentations. But you know, that means that it's a poem, a song of praise. It's not a sermon or a doctrinal treatise, but it is an expression of personal religious experience, and it very much is in line with sort of Hebrew literary heritage. Um, you know, you talk about. Um, their sorrow in sin, um, communion with and delight in God, searching for perfection, um, humility under chastening, and then triumph over evil. What I really love about this is the first thing I think is that we have this individual, Nephi, who is absolutely extraordinary. I research and write on a woman named Josephine Butler in her teenage years. Uh, she spent hours and months and weeks in the forest outside of her home seeking to know God better. And when she had her seminal spiritual experience, which she does not go into detail about, one of the things that she asks God is to give him her heart's love for sinners. So she wants to feel towards children on earth the way God sees and loves his children. And she did seem to get that endowment. We see this with Nephi. How else could you love your brothers when they're persistently trying to kill you? And he says, I freely forgave them unless you've been given that extraordinary endowment from our Father in heaven. So this is an, an amazing you know, prophet that is on the scene now. And the other thing that I find quite touching is, you know, we can make a comparison today. Whenever we get a mem- new member of the Twelve, Elder Kieran is a perfect example. The first talk that he gives, is he's talking about his sense of complete inadequacy to the task. Uh, I'm sure that there is self-reflection beyond anything that I could ever possibly imagine when you're put into that kind of a position, you know, to be an example and to help 
lead God's worth in, work on the earth today and to be in the spotlight with everything that you do and that self-searching, can I really live up to what is expected of me and what I hope to be able to do? And so it's just a beautiful you know, expression of his recognition of his complete inadequacy. And, you know, there's a couple of verses I particularly love because they're very reflective of how I feel. For my soul delighteth in the scriptures and my heart pondereth them and writeth them for the learning and the profit of my children. And we need to get to that point where we just love reading the scriptures because we realize that there is so much there for us that will help us and strengthen us and enlighten us. And then he says, my soul delighteth in the things of the Lord. My heart pondereth continually upon the things which I have seen and heard. This is someone who's not going to look beyond the mark if he has this kind of a perspective. And then I love 27 and 28 when he says something here that's quite interesting, he says, "Why and why should I yield to sin because of my flesh? Why should I give way to temptations that the evil one may have place in my heart to destroy my peace and afflict my soul? And so what Nephi is kind of expressing here is he finds that his own anger interrupts his spiritual peace and his ability to commune with the spirit. And that's a wonderful and important lesson for us in and of itself. And then he says, awake my soul, no longer droop in sin, rejoice, O my heart, and give place no more for the enemy of my soul. Do not anger again, do not anger again because of mine enemies. And he's sort of articulating here the um, the wrestle that we will continually have throughout our lives with um, temptation to despair and temptation to sin, and that that needs active resistance by every individual, you know, on earth. And then, of course, he gives praise to God that there is a way out, and that, of course, is by developing that close, close relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ, and turning to and depending on him. I have trusted in thee, and I will trust in thee forever. It's, it's such a beautiful line. The uh, <clears throat> He asks for deliverance out of the hand of his enemies, and he makes it, makes it clear, I think, that he's referring both to spiritual enemies and physical enemies. Uh, he does respect, he do, does talk about the enemy of my soul, uh, uh, almost certainly a reference to the adversary, but when he used plural, he, I'm sure he's talking about Laman, Lemuel, the sons of Ishmael, the growing uh, Lehi culture, Le, Lamanite culture that is seeking to destroy the Nephite culture. And uh, <clears throat> it's, he's asking for deliverance, but he's asking at the same time to help stop his anger. And I'm sure there is some real anger there uh, because Nephi through all this, through all these afflictions has kept trying to do the wrong things. His brethren have chosen, you know, his, his older brothers, Laman Lemuel, and uh, one assumes Ishmael as well, or the sons of Ishmael, have chosen the opposite course. And as a result, they are seeking actual, not just spiritual, but actual physical destruction of the followers of Nephi, and he is he is trying to fight the urge, I think, to be angry with them. You know, why should I anger because of my enemy? Uh, he's he wants he wants charity, but at the same time he's he's pleading for deliverance and saying, Lord, I've been doing I've been trying to do the right things. And thou has given me great things. Uh, help me, you know, 
My heart is, may the gates of hell be shut continually before me because that my heart is broken and my spirit contrite. That's verse 32. Wilt thou not shut the gates of thy righteousness before me that I may walk in the path of the low valley, that I may be strict in the plain road? Wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? Wilt thou make a way for mine escape before mine enemies? Uh, don't put a stumbling block in my path. Put it in their path. And so uh, I think at this point he's, he's dealing with some very serious conflict between uh, his, his group and the group that his uh, brothers, his older brothers, are leading and is frustrated at his own response and is seeking help to approach it from what he feels needs to be the necessary spiritual and emotional angle, while at the same time recognizing his need for protection and for rescue from the Lord. Robert. Uh, just on the um, structure of the uh, Sam and Nephi, uh, there was actually a very good article that was published in 1997 uh, by an institution that at the time took the Book of Mormon seriously. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to name it. But, um, <clears throat> Matthew Nickerson, uh, Nephi Sam, 2 Nephi uh, 4, 16 to 35, in light of form critical analysis. And he kind of runs through the book, uh, this passage in light of, say, the work of biblical scholars such as Gunkel and others. Um, and everyone should read the article. It's available for free online. But I'll just read from the conclusion because he kind of goes through and shows like how this is actually a very good evidence of the complexity of the Book of Mormon, especially when it seems to be a spontaneous creation by Nephi. Uh, Nephi's psalm plainly follows the format and substance of the individual lament, one of the uh, psalms, as described by Gunkel, a biblical scholar, and elaborated upon by numerous subsequent scholars. Study and comparison reveal that 2 Nephi 4, 16-35 is indeed a true psalm and not merely a passage of scripture bearing similarities in tone and feeling to the Old Testament Psalter. Not only does Nephi exhibit a talent for literary parallelism, but he also has written in a beautiful psalm in the biblical sense of the term. Clearly, Nephi was participating in ancient literary tradition when he wrote his psalm recording chapter 4 of 2 Nephi. It is not unreasonable to expect that Nephi's education described as the learning of the Jews and the learning of my father include the appreciation and use of Hebrew poetry. So at the very least, it kind of adds to the verisimilitude of the Book of Mormon um, in terms of how it figures in terms of, say, modern form critical analysis by um, scholars since the 19th century as well. So that was a... Uh, so I was just uh, someone tracking down that article and going through it. Um, it kind of goes through the uh, Sam of Nephi in light of these kind of structures as well. Thank you. Chris, last thoughts on this chapter? I'm good. Let's move on to chapter five. And this is... The Really, the last history chapter in the Book of Mormon. Uh, actually, not Book of Mormon, in, in, in Nephi's record. The last history chapter in Nephi's record. Uh, and he covers basically three things. He covers, again, that Laman and Lemuel are, are determined now to slay him. Uh, that the Lord warns him that he flees into the wilderness. So once again, he's replicating uh, his father. Uh, whose life was also threatened by the, you know, other powers, uh, and talks about setting up this new civilization in their new land. Uh, says, I, I did not take it, I would, didn't want to be a king, but I, I nevertheless served my people. Builds a temple, uh, and then talks about the consequence of uh, Laman and Lemuel and their choices. Uh, and then finally, we talk about the plates, uh, and we'll, we'll, I'll just, I'll just sketch, sketch it out. So let's talk about first the, uh, 
the first section where where Laman and Lemuel are uh, once again determined to murder Nephi, and uh, I'll, I'll pass it to Chris first. Thoughts on the first section of uh, Second Nephi five? Yeah, these are um, individuals that obviously don't know how to let go of anger and hatred, <laughs> and so they've just built and built and built. And I think it's interesting that he describes. You know, he he. What we're seeing here, if we want to have a good takeaway lesson, is to see the kind of corrosive effects of anger in individuals' lives and the way that it warps us and that it leads us away from the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says as much, you know, here that they just, they hate him. There's nothing he can do. And because of, you know, their malfeasance and their intention to, to kill him, that the and, and the Lord's understanding. It's interesting to me. I almost wonder if Nephi ever would have done this on his own. But the Lord very specifically tells him, he did warn me that I should depart from them and flee into the wilderness and all those who would go with me. So he's commanded to do this. It's not, you know, a decision on his own. The Lord commands him to leave them behind, which had to be heartbreaking for him in many respects. And so it talks about, you know, that he takes them all and that he flees into the wilderness for a long way so that they're not able to follow him. And then, of course, he takes all of those symbolic things that, you know, articulate that he certainly is indeed God's chosen prophet. Robert. Uh, yeah, and just piggyback on what Chris was saying, like Nephi is trying to present him, try to show that like, he's the rightful ruler in spite of he not being the eldest. Uh, he kind of stresses the fact that like, unlike Laman at all, they don't keep the law of Moses, they don't keep the covenants. And also, it's kind of significant that in verse 12, he explicitly states in his record that he has the uh, plates of brass, which would have been a very strong sign of he's been a prophet and so forth to have this very important artifact from the old world, but also the Liahona, the baller compass as well, which doesn't seem to be working anymore, but it does seem to have this kind of very strong um, symbolic representation of God's interaction with the world and a sign of kinship, which is probably why like when later when we read about um, how um, the sword of Laban also was passed down from generation to generation as well, it was his kind of artifact that was passed down by the kings at the time. So he's trying to present himself here mm-hmm. as the rightful ruler and king in spite of the protestations of Laman and Lemuel in this generation and later generations against his descendants as well. I know that some Book of Mormon scholars have pointed out, and I think correctly, that the, in essence, the having the brass plates, the, the Liahona, and the Sword of Laban is, in essence, equivalent to the Ark of the Covenant. It's it's the memory. These are the art. These are the artifacts that brought us out from the land we escaped from into the land of promise. Uh, they each serve different purposes, uh, you know, as opposed to the the again scribe ten commandments, the uh, uh, pot of manna, and the uh, the rod of uh, blossoming rod of Aaron that you had in the ark. So these these are very much. Uh, as Robert said, religious artifacts that have great importance. I do like the fact, the word here that, uh, and and I, I think this is this is both telling and a very deliberate comment on the part of Nephi in verse three. Wherefore now let us slay him that we may not be afflicted more because of his words. Basically, they were tired of having him tell them what they should be doing versus what they were actually choosing. Uh, and the division that was going on here. Uh, and they do say, you know, we, we don't want him to be our ruler. We're the elder brothers. We should have the rule. It says, I don't write everything they complained about, but, you know, 
they wanted to kill us. Now, we start to have here uh, an issue that, uh, again, has been addressed by a number of scholars, which is who else was in the land when they came? We know archaeologically there are a lot of people here in Central America, which is where, where we believe these things took place. Uh, and we, we get some of the initial advances because we have him name members of his family, you know, Verse 6, take my family, meaning his wife and kids, Zoram and his family, Sam and his family, Jacob and Joseph, who apparently don't be are not married yet, or at least don't have kids, and also my sisters, which is interesting because the sisters were married to the sons of at least some of his sisters were married to the sons of Ishmael. So it's not clear if they were they were leaving, and I if they were leaving, I think that you had concubinage with the uh, Local residents already starting to happen, as Jacob will condemn, as in uh, Jacob chapters 1 through 3. And all they which would go with me. Uh, and all they which would go which, with me. But the caveat, were, who, were believed, they, yeah, who believed. Yeah, were they which in the believed warnings. in the warnings yeah. and revelations of God. Yeah. So this is, this is, to me, one of the first indications that they had started to assimilate and probably from a ruling point of view, a local population, some of whom believed in the things that Nephi was saying, some of whom did not. Uh, and they're going to head, uh, I, I, my belief, my belief, personal belief geographically is that uh, they're, the land of first inheritance, as it gets called repeatedly, is on the coast here uh, in Guatemala, and they're going to head to the highlands. Uh and the area which is actually going to be populated by different groups throughout the whole history of the Book of Mormon, the, what we end up calling the land of Nephi uh, and the city of Nephi. And this is what, what it's named in verse 8. So his thing is, is he's trying to set up a basically replicate civilization. Uh, we're going to, you know, we're not going to be hunter-gatherers here. We are going to do agriculture. We're going to establish buildings. We are even going to build a temple. Uh, but we're going to have to do this in the face of actual combat uh, because the people which were now called Lamanites should come upon us and destroy us. And Robert, we'll go to you next. Just uh, on the issue of others in the land, um, I think that's kind of, uh, it explains like a lot of the text in the Book of Mormon when it comes to say, who are these other people? Because he's already basically exhausted all the other names. It seems to be converted local people yeah. or indigenous people. Uh, John Sorensen in 1992 had a very good article on others in the land in the very first issue of the Eternal Book of Mormon Studies. Um, I think it was called like when Lehi landed in the land did he find others there or something yeah. to that effect. And it's been built upon by like uh, John Tretanis and Matthew Roper. They've noted that Nephi likens Isaiah to these people and Lehi mentions how nations or Gentiles are assumed into the covenant people, like Isaiah 2, 2 Nephi 2, and a host of other issues that would kind of make sense, like uh, the issue of, like, say, social division based on riches and clothing so early on in Nephi history, polygamy, which doesn't make sense if there was, like, a very small population, and a host of other things as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it's kind of, um, it explains a lot of the text. Now, some ways say, well, how come the Book of Mormon does not explicitly state this? And this kind of goes back to, like, well, the Book of Mormon is a high-context text and high-context culture. Because in our modern society, and I say this as someone who works in history, we have a low-context uh, culture and low-context histories where we have to footnote and reference everything. 
But for ancient people, they come from a different context, including the Book of Mormon, where they just took things for granted. You know, that's why, like, um, you know, if we were to ask, like, well, Mormon, how come you never said, like, um, the people had dinners? Like, well, that was obvious. You know, you don't yeah. have to footnote it. Yep. In, the, in the same case, like, the Nephites would have recognized, yeah, there was, like, indigenous others that were adopted into the covenant. You don't have to reference that. But it also makes sense to say the presence of idolatry as well. Trenton has kind of made reference, like, how outside influence made the Israelites idolatrous, like the Canaanites. That seems to be the case as well for the uh, Book of Mormon. Like, why would you actually replace the uh, true God, you know, with all these potency, with, say, the Mesoamerican and idols and so forth? So, yeah, it, there is something like a other people. And it explains, like, say, the ability to be, build a pro, uh, sm small temple based on that of Solomon, and also the warfare very early on in the Book of Mormon. Again, it makes uh, sense a lot of the incongruities, if you believe it was a uh, vacuum when the high arrived. Chris? Um, I'm going to jump back to something that Robert said, which I which I think is really important, and we see this over and over again in the Book of Mormon. We see it certainly when Benjamin anoints Mosiah to be his successor, and then there's a whole ceremonial involvement there designating him his successor. We see this here with Nephi. Nephi is trying to establish himself as a legitimate authority. Uh, I remember, if you'll remember Cromwell British history, uh, of course, we have this war against Charles I, and Charles I is eventually brought to trial before Parliament. And when he's seated there, he's testifying for himself. The first questions that he asks them is, by what authority? By what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? Because by divine right, God has chosen me to be the leader of this people. So basically, in essence, he's saying that this trial is a sham and that I am the legitimate heir. And, you know, this is an important matter because there are all kinds of voices in the world today, have always been, but, you know, today it's just cacophonous, that are claiming to be sources of authority. And we have before us scripture combined with the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, um, and then, of course, with the Bible, that when you join them together, they articulate so beautifully the principles and policies and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that, in essence, provide us a pathway to salvation. And so these individuals do spend a lot of time trying to establish themselves, and the scriptures do themselves, establishing their legitimacy as the ultimate source of authority. And so we see this motif throughout the Book of Mormon, and it's something we need to pay attention to. And as we do pay attention to that, the scriptures take on additional credence for us as a source of authority to which we can turn as to how to manage and to how to guide our lives, particularly in tumultuous times. And so I find that quite lovely. I also think that we see the foreknowledge of God here because God understood what he intended for his people and what he needed them to do. And so what we see is that you know, when the Nephites separate themselves, they are able to establish their own community. And within that community, they're able to observe the law of Moses. They're able to keep those religiously symbolic instruments that remind them and turn their thoughts to God. They're able to develop technology. They're able to consecrate teachers and priests, and they're able to build a temple for law of Moses sacrifices and to live happily. Now, happily, as I'll qualify it. I think in some respects, this, particularly that first generation, they do miss their home. They do miss their ancient home and all of those beautiful religious ceremonies. The, the law of Moses is usurped, of course, by Jesus Christ. Well, it's, it's, it's 
embraced, but we get the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ with Jesus Christ's advent to the earth. But, but those religious ceremonies were highly symbolic and were religiously significant and helped people understand better their place in the universe and their relationship with God. And so they're going to try to recreate those as best they can, but they are distanced from their homeland. You know, we read in, I don't remember who it's, Jacob, but, you know, we're lost and lonely um, people. And, and yet they're able to live happily because they're able to establish a community that is focused and turned towards Jesus Christ. Okay, let's tackle the single most contentious issue in the Book of Mormon. Maybe it's not a single most. <laughs> the use of indicated the verses twenty one through twenty five. Yes, verses of Deuteronomy. Single most contentious. No, no, the skin of blackness, uh, where he talks. Well, first, verse twenty, where we have this this phrase which is repeated consistently through the Book of Mormon, uh, where he says, "Wherefore the he talk, wherefore the word of the Lord was fulfilled, where he spake unto me that inasmuch as they will not." Hearken unto thy words, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. My personal opinion that has reference to the temple uh, and the law of Moses ceremonies and so on, and that the Lamanites sort of knowingly abandon that, uh, that's my personal feeling there. But then we have verse 21. And he caused a cursing to come upon them, yea, even a sore cursing, uh, yada, yada. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, Therefore, the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. Okay. We get people who cite this. Oh, yeah, this is why the Mormons denied the blacks a priesthood. Okay. These are brothers, okay? This is the same family. Uh, and so you have various theories. I mean, back when I joined the church nearly 60 years ago, it was assumed that this actually referred to a, uh, and it's still, you know, a popular theory within the church. It's an actual physiological change, and they somehow became darker. Uh, but there have been a number of scholarly analysis and suggestions that offer different solutions to this. Dean Dibley was one of the first who points out that in Middle Eastern cultures, the cities, the inhabitants of the city refer to the nomads wandering around in the desert as having a skin of blackness. And he says, they're the same people. <laughs> they're actually all related to each other. These are just more exposed to the sun than the others. Having spent a couple of years in Central America uh, and the, the description we're going to have in a uh, minute here about them uh, running around, uh, an idle people. You, there's a lot of references to the Lamanites not wearing as many clothings as the Nephites seem to wear. Nephites have a big focus on clothes, especially costly apparel. Uh, so you have that as, as one thing. There have been a number of other uh, proposed ideas, and I'm going to kick it over to Robert because I'm sure he he's got. I'm sure Robert's prepared for a couple here, at least. Uh, Robert, take it away. Yeah, this is understandably the one more contentious things, especially like because racism. I think we can all agree it's bad. But like, um, just maybe like to take a step back to before we address what were the uh, skins of blackness and so forth. It's like, you know, uh, is the Book of Mormon racist? It is, but in an ancient text, not like a KKK 19th century context. I mean, it is a very ethnocentric text. And some of these descriptions of Lamanites seem to be more propaganda than historical oh, fact. Yes, yes. <laughs> because like they're described as being lazy and so forth, and yet they have cities, they have civilization, they're actually outnumbered Nephites. So it seems to be like um, a prejudicial, um, some prejudice going even amongst Nephite prophets when it comes to the Lamanites. But there's been various theories, as you know. Um, Interpreter has done like a lot of good articles 
surveying like possibilities like this could refer to like say temple imagery and temple clothing or it could refer to like say deuteronomistic cursings that are like externalized when it comes to the language of skins or Brant Gardner in his commentary understands it as merely metaphorical for like righteousness and covenantal people versus unrighteous people as well but what kind of um and there's like being various theories and I don't really have like a set theory myself but what for me militates against the traditional view the literal it refers to actual black versus white skinnies in alma 55 moroni actually makes a um tries to find a descent of lehman amongst these people um which doesn't make sense because if they're all white guys it should be very easy to find the token black guy Mm -hmm. but what's rather interesting is in the later in the narrative in alma 55 these nephites are actually confused with being lamanites by lamanites as well which would indicate it wasn't a phenotypical or skin color thing that's going on here it seems to be a bit more, um, and I would agree like with some scholars that um, the Deuteronomistic code and other holiness codes and other uh, ideas are going on here than simply a very naive white-skinned guys versus black-skinned guys. And uh, there was an article that was published by Interpreter, um, let me just grab it here, uh, by David Belknap. It's a very lengthy article, it's about 180 pages. Uh, the Inclusive Anti-Discrimination Message of the Book of Mormon that was published in Volume 42 of Interpreter back in 2021. Uh, it's a very lengthy article, but it kind of shows that in spite of these issues, the Book of Mormon is actually very anti-racist because one of the most important prophets in the Book of Mormon was actually a Lamanite. Yeah. You know, he gets like three chapters and you compare that like, say, other figures like Aminadi, who's, in spite of what Don Bradley thinks, like um, when it comes to the contents of the 116 pages, in our text of Book of Mormon, only one reference to him, <laughs> you know? So um, race in the Book of Mormon is like, it's a much more nuanced thing than like a lot of people, including our detractors, um, portray it to be. And uh, before I turn it over to Chris, one other thing that's worth noting, uh, in the late 19th century, the popular press, meaning the rest of the U.S., tried to portray Mormon immigrants as not being white, as somehow being less than the white population, even though these were like Scandinavians and, you know, I, I mean, they were all from <laughs> Europe. <laughs> they were all the same thing. But... The denigration was these are these are subhumans somehow, and I think that's that's very much what's going on here. Chris, your thoughts and comments. Yeah, I, I would like you know, for, just for me, when I do a little bit of a closer reading here, one of the things that I think we have a tendency to do is I think that there are two points that the Lord is making here. So, the first and and but but what our tendency to do is to conjoin the fact that they are sorely cursed. Um, with um, that cursing being a skin of blackness. But that's not what the Lord is seeming to be saying here. He says that um, he caused that um, a cursing to come upon them, even a sore cursing, because of their iniquity and their hardened hearts. Now, the inevitable consequence of those actions is the loss of the Holy Ghost. So that's the real sore cursing that we're talking about here. But then he talks about to accompany so that we can distinguish them, I'm going to put a a blackness upon their skin for a period of time so that you can distinguish them from you as a way to distinguish. So really, I think what we're seeing in many, to my mind, what we may be seeing here is that we're actually conjoining them, but it's actually a curse accompanied by a mark. 
that Jesus Christ puts upon these individuals because of their wickedness. So the cursing is loss of the Holy Ghost. The mark or, you know, what we see is, of course, we see them getting um, this um, black skin and for some see, period of see, time. And I believe it's the early chapters of Third Nephi. We see hostile forces putting a mark on themselves as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and thus, and they see this. Mormon says this is a fulfillment. They're doing it to themselves. They're marking themselves. So we're, we're wrapping up here. Uh, we have Nephi making uh, these, his, his small plates, and we have a time frame that at 30 years, verse 28, 30 years had passed away, and then he made, he's commanded after that point to make the other plates. He does all that, and then in verse 34, just you know, about half a dozen verses later, says 40 years have passed away. So he was a long time in putting together we, we don't know when he started, but somewhere between 30 and 40 years is when he actually did the small plates. It's not entirely clear when he started the large plates, but I suspect it was after they came to the New World and actually had access to metal, could smelt, and so on. Uh, so that's uh, – and this is the end with 34. This is pretty much the end of the Nephite history. Last thoughts or comments, Robert? Uh, just a good resource on the issue of like skin color and racism in the Book of Mormon. Uh, the B.H. Roberts Foundation, which I'm a bit biased towards. There you go. Uh, there's actually a very good Q&A into all the racism in the Book of Mormon. And just to what you were talking about, like how Latter-day Saints were portrayed as a different race. Uh, there was actually a very good by W. Paul Reeve, Religion of a Different Color, Race and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness, that was published only a few years ago. Um, I think it was by Oxford, yes, in 2017. That touches upon this and particular topic as well. Interpreter Foundation? Oh, Oxford. Okay. It was a book, but yeah. Oh, okay. Chris, last comments? No, I just want to reiterate that this sort of cursing has to do with the loss of the Holy Ghost. It has nothing to do with skin color because over and over in the Book of Mormon, it talks about all are alike unto God. Black, white, men, women, bond, free. So that wraps up this portion of the Interpreter Radio Show. We'll be back after a, an imaginary break here. Thank you very much.